For everyone staying in here, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 9, we're going to be getting to one of the, the more well-known stories and passages in this, uh, this book. But as we do, um, I wanted to kind of mention, so we're going to be looking at the conversion of Saul today, who we know most often as, as Paul. But when we look at this, we're doing something a little bit, not, not really different. When you look at Scripture, Scripture has a meaning. You can't look at a passage and decide what it means for you. Um, now, there are times where the application may be different for you than another, but when Jesus told a parable, He had an intention that He was trying to convey. And we can't decide that that intention is something other than what it truly was. Now, at times, so take, for example, the parable of uh, the prodigal son. There are many things you can learn and focus on but the truth can't be altered. We see the love of the Father. We see the rebellion and repentance of the Son, and we see the older Son's poor attitude toward His younger brother and His Father's forgiveness. So all three of those things could be focused on, but we can't add something else. We can't put something else into it. So normally when you think of the conversion of Saul, you would focus primarily on that conversion and all that took place with it. But we've been walking through Acts. And we've seen who Saul was. He was there when Stephen was murdered, and he gave approval to it. As we'll read in this passage, he's on his way to get some letters to take more people back to the high priests to, to, to hurt them. And I would encourage you today to turn in your Bible uh, so you can read along, because we will not have the words on the screen today. Um, but, but with this, we're going to be looking at a longer piece of the passage. And so when we see it in the full context of what's going on, it, it might change a little bit or give a better, a broader perspective of what all's happening. And so it, this may be, it's different than I thought I was going to preach it, but we will, we will journey through that together. And I think that God has been working in this and has been working in where we are today. Um, I hope that is evident as well. So with that, let's start reading Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord." And, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for just the ability to come here and to worship you, to, to sing your praises, to give you the honor and the glory that you deserve. And, and Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your holy word that you give us, that we can see what you have done, we can see what you call us to do, and we can uh, take encouragement, we can, take, uh, we can learn from it, and you will guide us. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you give us, that indwells us and enables us to, to, to understand what you call us to and then to carry it out. God, I pray that you'll be with us this morning. And as we look at your word, as we look at this story of Saul, that we can understand and, and see what, what we can take from this and, and learn and apply in our own lives. That we would see how we can follow you faithfully. And we can see how we can see you move among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this passage, as I said, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, we read a long section of that scripture, really the whole introduction to Saul as a Christian and then the beginning parts of it. Obviously, he comes back into the story in a couple chapters. But this whole time, we've been seeing this concept, this idea of God doing what people thought was unlikely. We saw Pentecost happen and the salvation of many people through the, and we see the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and its manifestation among the people. We see uh, the, the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. We see uh, the Ethiopian eunuch receiving the Holy Spirit. All of these unlikely things are occurring because God is moving powerfully among His people. And so when we look at this passage, 
perhaps at the time, one of the most unlikely things to have happened was the one who was going after them to kill them encounters Jesus and is saved in a dramatic fashion. So the first thing that we need to notice about this is that God moves. In this passage, the first thing that happened is that God moves. Because Saul is going to Damascus to bring back believers to have them thrown in jail and likely some of them to be killed. But instead, God interrupts. God is the one who initiates this situation. Saul is not seeking after God, not at least in a pure way. He's seeking after him in his own understanding, which leads him into falsehood. He's not seeking God. He's not seeking Christ. But Jesus steps into it. God moves in this circumstance. So Saul is on the move to persecute the church. Jesus appears, blinds him, and sends him to Damascus. Perhaps the most unlikely of converts. His eyes are opened and he's baptized because Ananias is told by God. God shows up to Ananias says, go see Saul. His eyes are open and he's baptized. Then he, the, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches in the synagogue. We also see that, that the brothers deliver him from those who persecute, pursue him. God is with them working through this. And so we see that God moves. He appears to Saul. He speaks to Ananias. And the Holy Spirit empowers Saul. All of this is God's initiation because he has a plan and a purpose for Saul. Later we know him to be Paul. Now, this isn't, I don't think, as dramatic of a name change as often we make it out to be. He was Saul prior, and then uh, he leaves that life behind and becomes Paul. I think that is somewhat symbolic, but at the same time, it says he was Saul who was also called Paul. We'll see that we see that in a later passage. And then they just kind of refer to him as Paul afterward. It helps distinguish between the two, but Saul is changed. How is Saul changed? Because Jesus stepped in. What we have to remember here is this is the exact example of what the gospel is. We were dead in our sin. We were going our own way. We were rebelling against God. But God, because of his great love for us, made us alive. In salvation, if you are a believer, what happened to you is the same thing that happened to Saul. Now, maybe you weren't walking down a road going to kill some Christians, but you were walking in your sin. And at some point, whether it was a faithful servant coming up to you, talking to you, whether it was through a Sunday school teacher being faithful, whether it was through your parents being faithful, sitting in a revival with an evangelist being faithful, someone presented this reality to you that you are a sinner. You're living in opposition to God. Repent and believe in what God has done in Jesus Christ. And from that moment that you've believed that, you've believed in Jesus Christ, you've acknowledged your sin, you have gone a new way. It's like your eyes have been opened. I once was blind, now I see. This is a beautiful example of that. Saul was blind until he encountered Christ, even though he could see. And then he lives for Christ. So we see this example God moves. And so what do we learn? If, if we want to see God move, which I hope that you do, I hope you're praying for that in your life, in the life of this church, if we want to see God move, we must first realize that God is the one who needs to do the moving. God is the one that has to show up. None of the things in this story happen because of the people involved. It is all because of what God did. 
We must be open to the movement of God, even when it happens in the most expected ways. I think sometimes the trap we can fall into is that we want to see a movement of God, and we'll talk about these things, and even our, maybe it's in our own minds or together. I want to see God move in this way. We want to see God move in this way. What should we do? You see the disconnect there. I want God to move in my life or among our church. What do I need to do? That's not how it works. We have to know that God is the one that's going to do the moving. Not our efforts, not our actions. That would be like a person hearing the gospel and hearing an evangelist proclaim the gospel and say, I know that I'm a sinner. How can I work this off? It's not how it works. God is the one that does the moving. And in this situation, we see a very unexpected way. Oftentimes, God works in our lives in ways that are not what we would intend, in ways that we, are not, that we would not expect. Every person in this story did not expect that Saul was going to become a believer. But we have to be open to God moving in ways that are extremely unexpected. They're going to make us uncomfortable. That are going to challenge what we've previously known. But we have to be open because God is the one doing the moving. And the reality is that sometimes when God moves, it can feel like a little too much for us. It can feel like it's stretching us too far. And, and we see that in this story because God is moving, but we also see people doubting. So God moves, but then the people doubt. Many people in this story deal with doubt. In this experience, so imagine this. Put your play, yourself in the place of Saul. He was convinced what he was doing was right. That he was going and working on behalf of God to put these blasphemous Christians in jail. And he's walking down this path, and all of a sudden, he's blinded, and hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, let me ask you a question. Use your logical thinking. If you were Saul, put yourself in his place, and that happened. Do you think you might have known what was going on? Maybe. But he says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He questions what's going on. But then Jesus reveals himself to him and tells him to go and tells him what to do. We also see Ananias. God says to him, imagine you're Ananias. You're sitting home maybe enjoying dinner. I don't know what he's doing. Ananias, here I am, Lord. That's a good start. He recognizes the Lord's voice. And when the Lord speaks to him, he says, here I am, Lord. There's a guy named Saul. Notice how he talks to him, too. He's like, hey, there's this guy named Saul. Um, he's praying right now. I just need you to go see him because you're going to help him regain his sight, and then he's going to be saved. And Ananias says, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that guy named Saul, and I think he's here to take people like me and throw me in jail. And what happens? So he's doubting. What's going on here? The Lord tells him, he, he knows what he must suffer for my name. I've shown him he's a chosen instrument. We also see again the disciples in Jerusalem. when So Saul's preaching the gospel in Damascus. Everybody's trying to kill him. They get him out. He goes to Jerusalem. And what happens? He shows up, hey, guys, it's me, Saul. Everybody freaks out and runs away. Everybody freaks out and runs away. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of, maybe you haven't seen this movie, Shrek, the movie Shrek. Even though he's... When the princess at night turns into the monster, it's the princess, but everybody freaks out because it looks like a monster. 
Saul's a monster prior to meeting Christ. And he shows up and they see a monster. What they don't see and what they doubt, they don't believe he was a disciple. What it says here, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They said, this is some way that you're trying to trick us. This is not real. You just want to infiltrate so you can take us all, throw us in jail. They didn't believe him. So here's the reality. Doubt can be a natural reaction to a situation that's unfamiliar. When you encounter a situation that's unfamiliar, you hear something that seems too good to be true, too outlandish, there's going to be doubt. If someone were to tell you um, that, that someone had, had passed away, a celebrity had passed away, that was quite young, that was in the prime of their life, what's the first thing you're probably going to do? Look it up. Go to Google. Because I tell you what, there was, a, there was a period of time when I was younger that that was very popular for some reason. People would make up stories about things, and it would be a rumor that spread, and everybody's fine. You look it up. Not because you maybe think they're lying. There's just this doubt. There's no way that's true. It's a, uh, doubt is a natural reaction to what is unfamiliar. But the problem becomes with doubt when doubt goes too far. Doubt that goes too far becomes skepticism. Now, fortunately, in this situation, we don't see this happen. But as we're addressing their doubt, we need to see how doubt goes wrong and leads us astray. When doubt goes too far, it becomes skepticism. There is the great skeptic, uh, Carl Sagan. And when I say great, I don't mean as though I'm calling him a great skeptic and I like him. I'm saying that he is a highly regarded skeptic. He says extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And this is a refutation, and he is, he's opposed to the gospel. He was someone that was opposed to, to believing in God. And this statement is when doubt goes too far. Here's the reality. I, I would doubt if there was a person in here that says they have never had any doubts about God, had any questions about it. You never had any moment where you're like, is this all, is everything I believe exactly right? If you've never had those moments, I, I would challenge you to consider how seriously you're considering what you believe. Doubting is not wrong when it leads to further trust, but doubt can lead to skepticism. What he's doing here is he is so entrenched in his doubt that he's looking for reasons not to believe. It's not as though he's heard an extraordinary claim and looks into it. He's looking for more reasons why it can't be true. So here's the test. Is the doubt you experience in pursuit of truth, or does it seek to avoid uncomfortable truths? So imagine this situation that you've probably experienced before. Did I leave the oven on as you've left the house? Did I leave the oven on? You are doubting yourself. You're doubting that you turned the oven off. You're doubting whether your house might be there when you come back. And so here's two responses that show how doubt, this is a very trivial situation, but how doubt could go wrong. Oh, I doubt it. Don't worry about it. That is often probably what the husband might say in that situation. What is the purpose of that statement? It is doubt that you left it on to avoid having to turn around and go check. There is not a basis of reality. There is not a situation that makes you confirm. It's not, I doubt it. I thought I saw you turn it off. It is dismissing the doubt. It's dismissing the reality that there, it might be on so you don't become inconvenienced. 
The other situation would be, oh, I doubt it, but let's see if the neighbors can check for us. Is the situation where you do have doubt. I don't think you would do that. You typically turn the oven off. You always ask about it. You never do. But let's check just to be sure. Doubt is only problematic if it leads to avoidance of finding the answer or or if it cannot be... Um, so doubt is problematic if it leads to avoidance of finding the answer. You've probably heard the, the, the statement before, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. The, the situation being, if you have doubt and it prevents you from seeking out the truth, you're like, well, you, know, you imagine a guy likes a girl. Well, I doubt she'll say yes. So he never asks her out. He will never know the truth of that situation. His doubt controlled him. His doubt prevented him from doing something he might have wanted to do. If doubt leads to inaction, it proves doubt to be right. Even further, it can lead to disobedience. Imagine, remember the story of Lot being delivered, and he, and he tells them not to look back. And Lot's wife, for whatever reason, looks back. Perhaps it's a doubt in God's provision, a doubt that anything would happen, a doubt of uh, the need of obedience, but this nagging feeling of looking back caused her to be disobedient. It's also a problem if it cannot be assuaged by evidence. If, you cannot, if evidence cannot turn away, turn you away from your doubt. As I said earlier, when doubt goes too far, it becomes skepticism. The idea that someone having proved something to you and you refuse to believe it is a problem. It should not take extraordinary evidence to believe an extraordinary claim. Simple evidence will suffice. The idea that the tomb is empty, and the tomb was empty and remains empty, no body has been produced, is a large piece of evidence that people must deal with. When, when Saul heard Jesus and he said, I am Jesus, and he couldn't see anymore, that was all it took. He didn't ask for anything further than that. When Thomas saw the wounds, he didn't ask for anything further from that. The evidence sufficed. And we, we get that. Wouldn't, wouldn't you hate for that to be your name? Doubting Thomas. He doubted, but what did he do? When evidence was produced, he believed. He didn't refuse to believe it, as Saul was in the habit of doing until he encountered the evidence that made the difference. But that's where people even look for reasons not to believe. I want you to consider uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So we see this idea. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. What this passage is talking about is a similar situation that they're dealing with. Don't doubt everything so much that you disprove and disapprove of everything. An attitude of testing starts from a similar place of doubt. But it is in pursuit of truth. It is what's happened here. It is but God, isn't this the guy that's killing Christians or persecuting Christians? I know. I've chosen him to be my witness. And so he goes. Quenching the Spirit is an extinguishing of the Spirit. Seeing what God is doing and putting it out. The, the word quench, we don't usually use it that way as often, but it's really a synonym for extinguish. In, if seeing the movement of, it is putting, is seeing the movement of the Spirit 
and putting it out. Imagine seeing the excitement of a new believer and someone comes in and says, yeah, you'll get over that in a couple months. That was just like, that's how I was. Quenching the Spirit, putting out what God is doing. If you remember a few weeks ago, we used an illustration uh, dealing with when people are grumbling, right? You have gasoline, you have water. When it comes to the movement of the Spirit, the same illustration applies. You have gasoline and you have water. And, and quite literally, the idea of quenching the Spirit is that when the Spirit is moving, which throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a fire, spreading and moving, you're pouring water on it. Now, some, someone is, is moving, the Spirit's moving in a way, I'm going to pour water on it. That's quenching the Spirit. But we don't haphazardly throw gasoline at the first thing we might think is the Spirit's working either. We test, we discern, and then we act appropriately. We pour gasoline on what is good and water on what is bad. If someone came in here and started pre teaching some sort of heresy, if I started teaching some sort of heresy, I would hope that our deacons or someone would come up here and say, you need to quit, and they would correct it. They're going to pour water on that. They'd probably hear me out for a second, but then they would test it and they would know that is not Scripture. We're quitting that. But at the same time, when the Spirit moves, we can't become cynical. We can't become people that will look for reasons why it's not the Spirit. When it becomes clear it is, we join in with the excitement. We pour gasoline on it rather than water. We don't quench the Spirit. So doubt in itself is not entirely wrong. That initial questioning but being controlled by doubt is. When we have a doubt, we should test it, seeking the truth not to confirm our own thoughts. Based on the results, we pour water on what is bad and fire on what is good, or on gasoline on what is good. But we see the results of this being done very well in this passage because all of these people, despite their doubts, obey. The people obey in their circumstances. Saul questions who's talking to him but he listens to the Lord. Ananias questions, are you sure this is, I need to do this? But he goes and he obeys. Barnabas, having seen the truth of Saul's conversion, becomes an advocate for Saul. So these people don't have a supernatural experience where the Lord speaks to them. It is Barnabas being an advocate for Saul, explaining the conversion, explaining the evidence of the Spirit in his life. And it's very important that we become an advocate for others within the faith. The believers then receive Saul upon hearing this from Barnabas. So what we see here is that people doubt, but the people also obey. Their doubt did not lead to them not being obedient. Their doubt did not prevent them from obedience. They obey despite their initial doubts because they tested it, they asked the question, and they moved forward in obedience. Their doubt did not control them. Rather, their desire to obey the Lord was what they were devoted to. And so from this, we should learn that when evidence appears that refutes our doubt, we should let our doubt go and trust in the Lord. This is what we see, this idea of not being anxious, but casting our anxieties onto Him. Anxiety often comes from our doubt. Will God really move? Will God really show up? Is God really going to help me? Does God really love me? What is that? That is a doubt of the things God has said. But what we are called to do is to cast those anxieties, cast that doubt off, trust in the Lord. And so when we encounter a situation, really, Lord, is that who you want me to talk to? They've done so many wrong things to me. They've hurt me in so many ways. You really want me to, to go and share 
love with them and to forgive them, that becomes a problem if that thought controls rather than obedience to God. So we should trust God and let go of the things that we doubt when it's clear that it is not what we ought to do. We should be obedient, follow Him faithfully. And our obedience lets, keeps us firmly within the will of God. When we test Him, we discern, and we see what the will of God is, obedience helps us to remain within it. And we also see that we should be an advocate for others within the faith. You've heard the passage before, God is for us. Who can be against us? One of the strangest things that we see in churches too often, if God is for us, why often are so many Christians against one another? And so what we have to remember is that when we find that happening and we see that happening in the church, when Christians become against one another, they have disputes and arguments, we should be like Barnabas and intermediate, be advocates for one another in the faith, building one another up in love as Barnabas did. And the result of all this is that God moves. And this is the big picture. This is what we talk about most often. We see this dramatic transformation of Saul. We see the Christian killer to the foremost evangelist missionary, one of the most impactful people in history apart from Christ, who changed the world. If you look at those missionary journeys, you look at all the things that we'll get to in Acts. He did incredible amounts of things, wrote half the New Testament, book-wise, 13 out of 26. He becomes a Christian. That's the story that we hear about this. That's the big picture. But in that were so many aspects people trusting God, people being obedient, people putting their doubt away, and seeing and being open to God moving. Because the problem is that happens, and we see these examples in scriptures at other times, because the last point is that God moves. Because God moves initially, and people doubt. And that step is what determines whether at the end God is moving. Because in this story, God moved, people doubted, but then they believed and they obeyed. And as a result, God continued to move. We've seen places in Scripture where people are disobedient, where God is moving and they quench the Spirit, or God is moving and they do something other than what they're supposed to do. And in those moments, God takes His hand off of the people. When you see this happening, I tell you, what this, where this sermon ends up going, especially toward the end, I had already had working in my, my mind before I really dug into this week's Sunday school lesson. And it goes to the same place. Why are we in Daniel? Why is Daniel in Babylon? Because the people of God chose something else over God. What is that doubt? Is God really enough? These people seem to have a good life. I'm going to do that instead. This seems easier. And as a result, they're punished. There's the exile. So Daniel finds himself in Babylon. Because God was moving, but the people doubted and their doubt controlled them. They didn't obey. And so God's movement is his hand away from them to punish them, to allow them to deal with some difficulty so they will eventually be sensitive to the movement of God again. And that's what we saw this morning. Daniel realizes that the, the, the time of, of the uh, the Exile is almost over, and so he is seeking God's movement, being obedient so that God will move again as he promises. But with Saul, we see his immediate action in service of Christ, preaching in the name of Christ, 
teaching people, convincing them that he is the Messiah. Although he did not immediately set out on his missionary journeys, it's important to notice even Paul, even Saul, had some level of discipleship or some period between becoming a new believer and being one of the foremost leaders within the church. Although his situation was very different than ours. Various believers overcame their doubt of Saul's conversion to seek to be obedient to God instead. And through all of this, we see God moving. In Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We've been going through Psalms, and, and one of the things that we've dealt with very recently is that this idea of the fear of the Lord. Having a fear for God rather than a fear for people. Because when we fear God and, and have a correct understanding of who He is, a correct view of Him, it enables us and empowers us to do these hard things. Because the only thing that we truly fear, the only thing we truly respect and, and have any concern about is God. We aren't worried about the people that might persecute. That's what we see here. They're not worried about the people that might persecute because they know God is the one they serve. It's the same attitude that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. Our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, it's right to serve him over doing what you would call us to do. So this is an example of how they got it right. Most often, like I said, we look at Saul in the, in the conversion. That's an important part of it. But when you look at the whole picture of it, it is how people continue to be obedient. This is the kind of situation that could cause a fracturing of a church. I can imagine a situation in a contemporary world where an individual who'd been living a very interesting life, people have, he has a reputation, people know about him, miraculously saved, called by God, begins to serve within the church. I could see some church people being like, I don't know about this guy. I know, do, you, do you know what he used to do? The life he used to live? I don't know if he should be involved with our church. I've seen that. I've seen churches that have people that don't want to go to, to maybe a Maybe they start running a bus on Wednesday night, and, and the kids are a little difficult. And it's like, I don't know if I want to be around those types of kids. Those are the things that stop the movement of God. Because what is it? It's sin. It's allowing our doubt and our, our preconceived ideas to get in the way of what God is doing. So from this, we, what can we learn about all this? We must trust, first and foremost, that God will move. God is the one that does the moving. If he doesn't, there is nothing we could do. If God did not send Jesus, if God did not intervene, there is nothing we could do to pay the price for our sins. And in the same way, if we want to see God move among us, there is nothing we can do if God is unwilling to move. So we must trust that God will move. We must not let doubt consume us. But let our doubt move into testing and seeking what the will of the Lord is. And when we identify what the will of the Lord is, we should be obedient to it. When we discern this, we must be faithful in being obedient to where the Lord is leading. So the challenge today is what do you need to do today? Are you trusting that God will move? I, I tell you, that's hard to do sometimes. Depending on where you're at in your life, what's going on, there's moments, we see it all throughout Scripture, where people question and have doubts. That's normal. But we have to remember and remind ourselves of who God is, what He's done, and what He promises to do. Are you trusting 
that as God promises he will, that he's going to be with his church, he's going to build his church. This is not about us and how hard we work, but that God is going to preserve his church, that God is going to build his church, and that we just need to trust that he's going to move and we, we should be a part of it. Or are you letting doubt consume you? Doubting God's goodness, doubting that he will move, doubting that there's anything left that you can do, or doubting that you're going to be able to be a part of it. Are you letting doubt consume you? Are you testing and seeing instead? Are you seeing, well, I have a doubt, but I'm going to test and see if it is a, is a legitimate doubt or not. And when you see what God's will is, are you being obedient and following? After you've tested and you've seen, are you being obedient and following? Because this is when you will see the continued movement of God. And here's what I, I firmly believe. I believe that God is moving right now already. I believe that each day as we live our lives, God is preparing for and, and opening doors for and doing things where he is moving. Because the Bible says in John five seventeen, this is what Jesus says. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. I don't believe that God has stopped working, even if in your life or it, it feels like, or my life, it might, at times it feels like he has for a moment. I think he's still working. We must not doubt. We must test and obey and figure out what God is calling us to do. You know, we can get to a place in our lives where it feels like things are difficult. It feels like everything's falling apart. And, and, and you know, in the life of, of a church, it can be hard sometimes. You know, there, there are many of you I know that can remember times where this church was, was much larger and doing much more things than it does now. And when you get to those periods where things are different than they used to be, it leads you to question. It leads you to have these questions about things. But, but really, like I said, as this all intersected for me, where I felt God was leading me in this, and then as I got into Sunday school lesson, I think part of what we have to recognize is that at some point, at some point when a church declines, there's some place where someone at some point was not open to or following through with what God was moving and doing. I've seen it happen over and over again in churches where at some point God is doing something and people say no. People say, I don't believe that's what we need to do. Not because they're testing, not because they're seeking, but they are looking at what God's doing and they don't want to be a part of it. Here's the deal. I have no idea what I'm talking about in regards to this church. I'm not making any sort of claim or thing, but what we see clearly in Daniel is that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I wasn't here. It doesn't matter that you weren't here, maybe. It doesn't matter if through those times, maybe if you've been here for a long time, you can think of situations where that probably wasn't what we ought to have done. It doesn't matter if you were on the right side. What we see through Daniel is an example of when, when we want God to move again, when we want God to show up, we have to humble ourselves and seek him. It's a baffling prayer to read in Daniel chapter 9. When he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, and he says, we have sinned against you. Have you read Daniel? Every single situation we see, what does he do? The right thing. But he's covering himself in sackcloth and ashes, repenting before the Lord for himself and for the, all the people of Israel. Why? Because he understands it's not just about him. It's a collective effort. 
And so if we as a church want to see God move and, and continue to move like we see happening here, we remember 2 Chronicles seven thirteen through 14. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. As I said before, I believe that God is moving. I believe that God is ready to move, but I, I do believe firmly that one of the things we all must do is to seek Him in humility, to seek Him in prayer and repentance, seeking to see what He would do among us now. And sometimes that's hard because it means repenting for and asking for forgiveness for things that maybe weren't really your fault. But as a church, as individuals, we all must seek to repent and follow faithfully, individually and as a whole, so that we will see what God is going to do. So as we get to this time of invitation, where are you? Maybe today you're like Saul. Maybe you've been living your own way, doing your own things, not caring for what God would want for you. And today the message you need to hear is that you need to follow, repent and follow. You're going the wrong way. And you need to believe in what Jesus has done. To understand your sinfulness, that it can only be paid for by the blood of Christ. That God provided the sacrifice for because of His love for you. Or maybe today you've been struggling with doubt. That the places in your life where it feels like God should be working, you're doubting whether He ever will, and you've let it control you. It's, you've, let, you've let it lead you to an action. Today, would you turn from the doubt and trust in God? And can we all seek to go to Him in prayer together, in repentance for our own sins, in repentance for any sins that, that have been committed that have led us to where we are individually as a church, or as a, you look at the whole nation, Christianity has declined in the entire nation. Why? I think there's been a failure to obey by believers. A failure to disciple. A failure to share the gospel. A, fail, a failure to be obedient in their own individual lives. And the result of that is that God at times removes His hand. Not because He's not moving, but as we see with the people of Israel, when His people won't obey... He disciplines them, not because he hates them, but because he loves them. The scroll that, that Daniel read that made him realize the, that everything was about to end, that, that the 70 years were coming up, was Jeremiah. And we all know, if, you, if, if I said Jeremiah and there's one verse that comes to your mind, Jeremiah 29, 11. Now we remember, he's talking to them about the exile, that he's going to punish them. But he comes back and says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans, plans to prosper you, to give you hope in a future, not for evil. So we shouldn't despise the discipline of the Lord. If we look at our lives and we realize maybe God isn't moving right now because of where I'm at, that's probably most likely. Maybe God's not moving because we haven't been doing what we know we ought to do. Maybe He's not moving because there's things we haven't addressed. The place you start is to humble yourselves, to humble ourselves, and to seek the Lord together. So as we have this time of invitation, 
wherever you are, how do you need to seek the Lord today? For salvation? For trust that He can do things far beyond our understanding? That's what He continues to show. Oh, the Samaritans are going to believe? Oh, this Ethiopian eunuch is going to believe? The guy that killed Stephen believed? And it continues as we go forward. Do you believe that God can do things in your life and through your life that people would look at and say, there's no way that that's what happened. There's no way those people did that. They don't know enough. They're not young enough. They, they haven't, that, that church is too small. Why is God moving there? Do you believe He can? And if you believe it, there's one way to seek it. Humbly in prayer, confessing and repenting to the Lord, asking that He will move because that's the only way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for this day You've given us. And God, I just pray that You would move among us. Lord, Lord we confess to You that, that we are sinful people. And in each of our lives, we have sin and we struggle and we don't obey You as we should. And God, we are ever in debt to your grace each and every day. And God, I pray and repent for any times in our lives individually or collectively as a church that we haven't followed and been obedient and sensitive to where you're moving and leading. And as we come to this time of invitation, God, I pray that you would fill us with a fear of you and a belief that you can do impossible things. That you can do things that without your movement make no sense. And God, I pray that as we repent of this, that you would remove the shame from us individually and collectively. And God, that you would show your face, that you would shine your face upon us. For your name's sake, you would bless this church. You would bless each individual. And that through it all, you would be glorified that we could take comfort in the Holy Spirit and we could see the growth and comfort that the Holy Spirit provides because we're being obedient to you and trusting that you will move. God, I pray you move among us. That if any don't know you or if they've only thought they've known you but never have had a saving faith with you, that they would repent and turn to you and that each of us in our lives would respond appropriately that you might be glorified and that the gospel might be spread. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.